Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 2nd of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, we're doing a special You Ask Us episode this week. We've put out several calls for questions and have had a fantastic response from you all, our listeners, and we're going to try and get through a good number of them spanning different parts of the world in this week's episode, which I'm greatly looking forward to. But first of all, Emily, how are things in Washington? What's the latest? The cherry blossoms are in bloom and... Biden has unveiled a $2 trillion infrastructure investment bill that has excited many and and upset, <laughs> drawn criticism from across the political spectrum. So that's the, the latest here and a story that we will be following as the debate unfolds. How is Berlin? The crocuses are out. Spring is very much here. But as usual these days, there's a negative news on the pandemic front, more trouble with Germany's response to COVID-19. I think we might also come on to that later as well. So I think with that, should we, should we crack on with the episode? What's your moment of the week been? My moment of the week is the beginning of elections in the state of West Bengal, which is one of the most populous states in India. It has roughly 100 million people are voting. So for a decade, Mamta Banerjee has led the TMC party. She vanquished the, the left front, which was led by the communists in 2011. And they had previously been in power for 34 years. So they How does the TNC relate to the, the governing BJP of Narendra Modi? Well, the- now, they're, now they're at odds in this, in this state election. So mm-hmm. basically in the 2019 parliamentary election, the BJP did actually made inroads in West Bengal, which was surprising to many because the kind of Hindu nationalist politics that the BJP espouses, they had never really been at play. In West Bengal, right? The BJP was a party that was associated with the West and the North of India. And the East had already had always had this very strong tradition of regional parties. And West Bengal in particular, just had a different political history, in part because during this long Communist Party rule, it was known as party society, where like the party and, and your relationship to the party was really more important than in some ways than like your, your caste or, or other other markers of identity. But now what's remarkable is that the BJP is really the main opposition to Banerjee and the TMC's encompassy. For many people, you know, this is not about the ideology that's at stake. It's not about Banerjee versus Modi. It's about the fact that this party has been in power for 10 years. There's still rampant corruption or alleged rampant corruption. People want jobs. And so people think, well, maybe I'll, I'll make this change. But 
On the other hand, people are saying that if the BJP does win this election in West Bengal, where it has never you know, had this, this historic foothold, it will basically reinforce this, this narrative of Modi and the BJP's inevitability heading into the next parliamentary election, to say nothing of the way in which the lives of Muslims in West Bengal, who make up roughly a third of the state, how their lives will be affected in the day to day. And what is your moment of the week? So my moment of the week, I raised it in our look ahead in last week's episode, but it was the Armed Forces Day in Myanmar last Saturday, as we record this. And as feared, it was a it was a bloody one with roughly 100 uh, protesters killed by the military junta there, which recently took power. And I think it brings the total death toll among protesters from the last few weeks to about 400 people, including a number of children. And this is obviously getting more and more international attention, rightly so. And the question is, I suppose, now what what can the international community do about it? It's obviously difficult politically, not least because of the sort of the complicated role of China with regards to, to Myanmar. But there was a, pro- a proposal came out uh, during the week by the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar, which is a humanitarian campaign, which which proposed what it called a, a three cuts strategy to uh, take on the, the Myanmar military. The first was to refer the situation there to the International Criminal Court. The second was to impose a proper arms embargo, and thirdly, to use financial sanctions against military officials and all military-owned companies there. And that really feels like quite low-hanging fruit for the international community. So here's hoping that that gets picked up by diplomats from elsewhere in in the coming days before more blood is shed. So with that, let's come on to our You Ask Us special. We received, as I mentioned, a huge number of questions. We picked out a few to try and crisscross the globe a bit. Shall we start with one about was closest to home for the New Statesman, which is, I think this was an anonymous question, how is Brexit currently viewed in the EU? Shall I, shall I give that a first go? And then, well, and then I, I, I'm not in the EU, so I will let you, uh, you answer that first. Briefly, I think, seen from the EU, seen from here in Germany, Brexit's no longer really a big subject. And it was always, I think it was always overestimated in the UK quite how central Brexit was to the political debates in other European countries, particularly in the last year or so. Obviously, it was, there was great focus on this in the immediate aftermath of the referendum and at certain points in the negotiations when they came to a particular head. But broadly speaking, I think the EU's moved on. There's certainly no sense that Britain's about to rejoin, which I think is an accurate perception from this side of the channel. There has been some attention paid to the the vaccine success in the UK. As, as listeners will know, the UK is roaring far ahead of the, the, the EU in getting jabs into arms. And that's been acknowledged as a success. But I think What's interesting is it hadn't, hasn't generally been closely associated with Brexit. The deals that the British government did and the logistics that it put in place to lay the foundations for its vaccine success happened while it was actually still essentially within de facto within the, the rules of the EU last year. And I think it's regarded, the vaccine success is regarded as a bit of a, a product of British eccentricities rather than the fact that it's left the EU. Related to this is an article by our colleague Ido Fock that we'll put on the, the episode page of this of this podcast, in which he looked at whether or not other countries were looking at leaving the EU, whether there would be the so-called domino effect elsewhere in the EU. And even now, with the problems that have been occurring with the vaccine rollout on continental Europe, it's not really on the agenda anywhere else in Europe. And I mean, Ido spoke to representatives of hard right, far right, and Eurosceptic parties in the European Parliament. And whether you're looking at Le Pen in France, whether you're looking at the AFD in Germany, you know, the consensus seems to be that actually the hard right, the Eurosceptic right can can change the European Union quite a lot from inside. And there's much more of a focus of on that 
change from within than on simply leaving. I think there are very few parties, even on that wing of politics, that are now proposing leaving the EU. But what, what's the view from Washington, Emily? Because obviously there was a lot of, kind of interest in the UK over what Joe Biden's instincts on Brexit would be, given that, you know, for a start, the Democrats generally weren't that keen on Brexit as a geopolitical project, but also he's got this particular personal connection with Ireland. Briefly, what's the view from there? Certainly Democrats were not thrilled about about the idea of Brexit, but respected the fact that it's, you know, it's not it's not our country, it's not our decision to make. I think there was a bit of concern over the Irish border between Ireland and, and Northern Ireland and and whether the Good Friday Agreement would be disturbed. But as that has at least not yet found a way to happen. I think basically the UK remains an important ally of the United States. And the other thing that I would say here is that particularly because the United States has found more sympathy in the UK than in continental Europe on China and less so on Russia, but certainly on China, which is their big, you know, their big task right now is standing up to China. The other thing I would say is that I think often I have heard this from from anti-Brexit Brits who say, well, we used to be the go-between between the US and Europe, and now we can't because we're out of the EU. I don't really think that's been true for many years. You know, yeah. I, I don't think yeah. the US has needed Britain to translate. Certainly Trump did not have fine relations with European leaders, but I don't know that he also, like, with whom, save for a few aspiring autocrats, did he have warm relations, right? Like o- Obama, I think, had fine relations with Merkel and with we were speaking about Matteo Renzi last time on the podcast. I think this notion of Washington needing London to to translate for them is an outdated one. And so I know that there is some consternation over Britain's place in the world. And as I've said in this podcast before, and have, have written before, Britain remains an important partner of the United States and provided both sides can kind of get over this, like, are we in a special relationship? Are we special to each other? It can continue to be an important partner. Yeah, I, I totally agree on the, this idea of the UK as a bridge between the US and Europe, I think always was a bit of a misreading in that the US had perfectly good and close bilateral relations with other big European countries and with the EU itself. And, and this idea that the, EU, the, the UK was needed to sort of step in there and say, oh, you know. And I think the irony of this is that often, at least I have heard it from people who said that, that the UK should not have left the EU, right, who were like very critical of Brexit and said that we weren't important enough to go it alone. But the argument kind of <laughs> respectfully inflates Britain's importance in this respect, at least. Yeah. Okay, so on to question two, and this turns the subject of our discussion back to Washington, where you are. Is Joe Biden proving as radical as he looks? I think we should first separate domestic from foreign policy. On domestic policy, I think that there is potential for him to be a radically transformative president. I do not actually think that he has lived up to that potential yet, right? I argued in my column that the 1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that they got through had some what for us are, if not radical, then then progressive measures, right? Like subsidizing healthcare and and extending child tax credits. But those are all set to expire this year. So when people say, oh, with these child tax credits, we're going to half child poverty, it's like, well, no, you're going to do that for this year. Now, there are some who say that they're going to try to make that permanent, but that is not in the $2 trillion plan that he just outlined. But certainly, you know, if, and I know that there are some on the left who say that the $2 trillion plan does not go far enough, especially on climate change, because it's $2 trillion over 10 years. It doesn't go far enough, fast enough. We're running out of time to truly deal with this crisis. But if we were to have universal <laughs> clean drinking water and everybody were to have access to the internet and 
pipes were lead free and housing were more accessible and more durable. Like that, that's not nothing. So domestically, I actually think that he is surprising people. His foreign policy is not radical at all, at least not yet. It's, it appears to be a continuation of generations of this just status quo foreign policy. You're referring to what his positions on China and Russia or Afghanistan? I what? think everything. It, it's really, it's an, I mean, I, I can't think of one foreign policy issue where it now it looks like, wow, he's really trying something new. We're still doing this kind of Cold War mentality on Russia and on China. We will see if we will get back into the Iran deal. I think on Israel, we're still seeing the status quo. I think what would be radical is if he manages to, if he actually manages to address immigration at the source, right? Like if our relations with Central America and Mexico are changed in a genuinely humane way, that would be radical. But right now, I think, you know, people talk about, is he going to be the next FDR? I think the better comparison is LBJ, who did manage to get through genuinely transformative domestic policy, but also had Vietnam. But we'll see. It's it's still It's still early days. Okay. Our next question moves us slightly farther afield. What does the China-Iran deal mean for both China and Iran's places in the world? Jeremy, do you want to take that first? Sure. Yeah, this refers to a 25-year strategic partnership that this past week was agreed between China and Iran, albeit somewhat behind closed doors. And obviously, people are trying to read into what this means. You know, you have the world's rising superpower doing a deal with a power that is regarded particularly by hawks in Washington, but also elsewhere as, as one of the major security threats in, in, in the world, and a country that's where the West has been grappling with the right balance between carrot and stick. And I think this is significant, of course, because, I mean, it's worth saying that China has these sorts of agreements already with a lot of other uh, Middle Eastern players, such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE. And so in some ways, it's just bringing Iran in line with its relations with the, the Gulf Sunni states. And I think it's also worth noting that the detail in this agreement seems to be fairly limited. There's big numbers have been thrown around around what it means in terms of Chinese investment in Iran, but it's all a bit unclear. And of course, Iran is still subject to US sanctions, which complicates matters. There is obviously potential for a close relationship between China and Iran, not least because Iran plays a theoretically could yet play an important role in China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is to connect up. Chinese industrial centers with Europe in particular through sea, but also particularly land routes, tracing the old the old Silk Roads through Central Asia. And of course, Iran is an important transit point on that route. And, you know, one can imagine, particularly in Iran, that has still got an awkward relationship with the US. As you mentioned, Emily, the, the Iran deal has not yet been restarted. China, of course, was a sponsor of the, the Iran deal as one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. And so, you know, one can imagine... Iran turning to China. China, for a country of its size and power, does not have that many allies. It is still very oil thirsty. And so you can see the, the makings of a, of a close relationship there that would work for both sides. But I think the way I'd see this is perhaps more in, in a similar bracket as China's relations with countries perhaps like Russia or Pakistan. We assume, particularly those of us in the kind of the Anglosphere, that the world is dividing into two camps, one aligned with the US against China's rise and we talk a lot about that with regards to things like the, the Indo-Pacific and the various formats designed to contain China in that arena. Obviously, it's also a conversation in Europe um, versus a, a sort of Chinese sphere of influence that takes in other autocratic powers in particular and sort of client states in the in the global south. And I think we forget when we, when we take that binary view that there are countries that sort of sit awkwardly in the mid middle. And I've talked a bit about this a bit in my column in the New Statesman over the last year. You know, you have countries like 
Russia, for example, that don't want to give up their autonomy to China, do not want to be client states to China. And I also include Pakistan in this. You could also possibly talk about Myanmar, although that's a, a, dis- a distinct case for various other complicated reasons. But countries that are, that, that are trying to find a middle ground where they get the benefits of partnership with China without giving up their autonomy. And I think I would probably situate Iran in that camp. And, and I would I would situate this, this deal as in that category too. It is a reminder that there are countries that can sort of arbitrage a bit the the geopolitical tension between the US and, and China. But on, on that point, and, and on, the, on the specific point about Iran, I mean, where do you see, you know, the other side of this coin, which is US-Iran relations? Because, I mean, obviously, the Trump administration had nothing but belligerence to offer there. But it's also, you know, it's not a straightforward matter for the Biden administration either, as, as much as they are theoretically keen to restart the, the deal. What, what do you think? Well, there are actually reports out today that negotiations to restore the deal will take place between all all parties next week, which would be the first significant step we've seen toward getting the deal back in place. I think the issue is the US might say, well, you have to do X, Y, Z before we rejoin the deal, to which Iran will say, well, you were the ones who left the deal, right? So no, but we'll see how the talks go. I think it is not bad for the US with Iran or with China to have another avenue for discussion, right? So th- the fact that that they're now going to have talks to set the deal back up, perhaps the fact that the deal will be back in place, maybe. To me, having that extra channel and having this one thing where we say, oh, okay, we know that that is working. We know that we know that things are in line here. That can lower the temperature more generally. I think the Trump administration had this paradox where pulled out of the deal, they put all these sanctions on Iran, and then they blamed everything in the region on Iran. And it's kind of like, well, if your hardline policies were effective, how can Iran still be all still be creating all of this harm? If the point of all of these sanctions and this deal withdrawal and this attempted isolation is to get them to change, and you're still saying that every bad thing that happens is Iran's fault, then obviously what you're doing wasn't working. This was kind of the question that the Trump administration could not answer. So we will see the extent to which the Biden administration decides to try something else. I think the fear is less that the US and Iran, and for that matter, the US and China, right, go to all out war. The fear is that they stumble into war, either through regional proxies or through through who knows. And I think that rejoining the deal, A, makes that less likely, and B, just makes for a more potentially constructive working relationship in other areas, which is what the Europeans said to the Trump administration, right? That like, listen, we agree that the rest of Iran's behavior is not ideal, but let us keep this deal in place and we can try to work on that. And I tend to be more sympathetic to to that argument. But we'll see how these reported talks in, in Vienna next week go. Yeah, I'd also urge listeners to go back and listen to that episode if they're, if they're interested in the Iran question more widely with Ariane Tabatabai, who's now in the in the Biden administration making policy on Iran. So if you want a sense of thinking in the corridors of power in Washington on this question, you could do a lot, lot worse than go back to that episode of World Review. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Okay, why don't you set us up with our next question? All right, get on the plane. We're going back to Europe. That wasn't necessary, but I said it anyway. Okay, question. Why do Greens in Central Europe seem able to combine green and center-ish policies, that's center-ish policies, in a way that seems impossible elsewhere? Jeremy, this one's for you. 
I think there are various explanations. I mean, there are green parties have established themselves more firmly as parts of the political mainstream, usually at least notch or two to the left of the political centre, but not always, uh, in various European countries, and been particularly the case in the last 10 years as social democrats, and in many cases, Christian democrats, and in some cases, liberal parties have struggled, also sometimes parties further to the left. Um, and, and Greens have generally done very well. You know, they're now a really major force in municipal politics in France. You know, they, they swept a series of major cities in recent local elections. They are in government in Austria. They're in government in Sweden, in Finland. Um, and of course, most notably, they're a major force in Germany here, here where the, the, the recent polls put them not that far behind the governing Christian Democrats. There was one recently that I think had the Christian Democrats on 26 and the Greens on 22. So really not, not a huge deal in it. It's very likely that the Greens will be in the next German government. It's, it's even conceivable that they will lead the next German government. And we'll be we'll be publishing more on that soon. So it's a very good question. Why is it that the, the Greens in these countries have managed to stake such a powerful claim to the political centre or, or the political mainstream or whatever you want to call it? And I think the biggest explanation, particularly if we're comparing that with the Anglo-Saxon countries, particularly the UK and the US, is, of course, electoral systems. These are all countries that at the level where Greens are doing well have a degree of proportionality that certainly in nationwide votes that is not present in the UK or the US. You know, the UK and the US are still firmly two-party systems based on majoritarian electoral system. Long story short, Greens have had more opportunities to claw their way into the politics of, of these countries in more places. But I think there's also a bigger story than that, and that's that the Greens and the mainstream have been growing together, both, both of them from their respective sides. So the political mainstream in a lot of European countries has become more, in inverted commas, greenish. You know, Green parties emerged from, in many ways, from the 1968 movement the sort of the new left, a left that was concerned not just with bread and butter subjects associated with social democracy and socialism, but also identity politics, personal liberation, civil liberties. Obviously, the environment is absolutely central. Many of them had, particularly in Germany, were linked with the anti-nuclear movement. And those issues have grown in salience over time as class has, it hasn't disappeared as a subject by, by any stretch of the imagination. And we've often witnessed in recent years how, how enduring the importance of class in politics is. But other, other spectrums in politics have become more important and at least have, have vied with the classic left-right divide for importance. Environmental concerns in particular have grown have come up the agenda as the effects of climate change have become more stark and as the, the countdown to the point where the world can no longer really do much about runaway climate change has, has proceeded. Societies have become more socially liberal, identity politics has become more important. And so societies in many ways have grown towards the Greens and they have become places, you know, European societies, but I think other Western societies have become places where Green arguments can get a foothold in a way that they, they couldn't before. But then the Green Green parties in many places have also grown towards the mainstream. You know, you look at the German Greens, but I know this applies to varying extents to other Green, green movements in Europe. And many of them, they're on their second or third generations of leaders who've grown up in a very different Europe from those of the, of, of, of the, of the generation, the 68 generation, or those immediately afterwards who founded the Green, green Movements. In Germany, you look at the, the typical Green Party voter. It's not necessarily a sort of Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn type to take the Anglo-Saxon example. Often it will be people who are quite comfortably off, maybe upper middle class. They might live in a university city or a big city or maybe a comfortably off suburb, they may well own a car, might be electric, might not, they might work in some sort of white collar 
job. They're relatively well educated, but also have some quite classic, you know, bourgeois concerns, if you want to use that term, about the stability of the economy, the future of the local employer, whatever it is. The perfect case in point for that is Baden-Württemberg, which is the state in southwestern Germany that recently re-elected for his third term in office a green minister president. And this is a state that is it's the home to companies like Daimler and Porsche and Bosch, sort of blue chip German companies, some of which may not seem a natural fit for a Green Party politics. But I think it goes to show how far green movements as a whole have sort of moved towards the centre. And so I think you've got a, a story of electoral systems that allow green parties to get a foothold in the first place, and then a sort of growing together of societies and green parties. Actually, I had this conversation not long ago with a friend who was saying that the reason the green parties are that the Greens are able to do well in Germany is that they're actually not that progressive. What do you make of that? They're pretty centrist. I mean, they are marginally left of the center. I mean, obviously, it depends mm-hmm. on one's perspective. It's very subjective. But, you know, they recently published their draft electoral program for the election this September. And, you know, they, they're looking at raising taxes on high incomes, they want to greatly increase public investment, they want to revise Germany's onerous debt break to make public investment more straightforward. They want things like tougher gender quotas for uh, company boards. They want to make it faster for migrants to be able to naturalize as Germans. You know, lots of policies that people would generally consider, you know, on the progressive side of politics. But they're not radical policies. You know, I think I, I, I think I would characterize the German Greens, and in fact, I think pretty much most. I mean, it varies a bit. You know, the, in, in the Netherlands, you have Groenlinks, which is a more of a kind of, a, as the name suggests, green left. It's more of a marriage between green and socialist politics. But generally speaking, I characterize the green political family as sort of mildly centre left. So I think your, your friend, your friend, and you are, are largely right. They are quite centrist, but I, I don't think I'd situate them right at the political centre. With that, we we will we will in a very ungreen way board our jetliner again and go right to the other side of the world because we have a question on Australia. Australia is currently reckoning with a parliamentary culture that's inextricably intertwined with toxic masculinity and rape culture. It's long past due, and with scandal after scandal leading to MPs stepping down and a panicked cabinet reshuffle, our Conservative coalition government is holding on to majority by one seat. Do you see space for a similar reckoning in other liberal democracies? And if not, what will it take to hold politicians accountable for abhorrent behaviour? And that's from that's Jack from Brisbane. And he writes, pronounce Brisbane. Jeremy, you got this. Emily, don't let me down. Brisbane. I got it. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. I am less. I have admittedly not been following the Australia story that closely, so I do not want to opine on this. But I will say that this is a problem all around the world. A big story here in Washington this week was that Republican congressman... Matt Goetz, who hails from Florida. The story is still moving, but the the broad strokes are that he is under investigation for allegedly having sex with and perhaps giving money to uh, underage girls. Relatedly, reports have come out that he has shown videos and photos, sexual videos and photos or, or naked videos and photos of women he's been with to colleagues, including on the House floor. There's There's so much to say about this. But I think the main thing that I want to stress, since it's still, you know, it's still under investigation, and I, I don't want to say like, yes, he definitely did it. But this is a, a personal issue. It's a professional issue. And it's a policy issue, right? Like, obviously, if he did this, then he broke the law. That's a personal issue for him. If he is showing naked women <laughs> to his colleagues while at work, that is a workplace issue. How you live your life and how you treat your place of employment, which is also a lawmaking body, will, one imagines, 
be reflected in the policy that one creates toward women who are not a small percentage of the population. So I think the thing that really gets me is that like this toxic culture that we see in these lawmaking bodies, that culture is then reflected in the laws that are being passed and which end up treating women as as uh, inferior citizens in some respects. I personally don't think that there's going to be one grand moment of reckoning. I think that one might have been tempted to say that that Me Too a few years ago was it. And we're still, the world is still as it is. It's still happening. And there are still people who come out and say, oh, it wasn't, you know, it's just men. It's just what they do, which I think is unacceptable. But I do think that the conversation on it has changed now, right? That what we consider acceptable has changed. Reactions from the press and public and voters have changed. And I think it's going to take time. And I guess the other thing that I would say, when I say these policies affect women, I mean, women at the highest echelons of power. I mean, women who are who are fighting to work for a minimal age. I mean, girls who are being kept out of bathrooms in which they feel most comfortable through anti-trans bills that are being passed in the United States and being told, no, you can't participate in sports. I mean it in the most expansive definition possible. I think like to me, you can draw a direct line between toxic cultures and lawmaking bodies and the ways in which all of these women and girls are under threat from the laws that are passed by these same people who are creating toxic <laughs> workplace cultures in legislative bodies. On the point about do we see space for a similar reckoning in other liberal democracies, you have to be optimistic in politics. But it's remarkable that a lot of, you know, you look at a lot of the industries that have been through me, me Too moments in the last few years that have really obviously shaken things up, probably not enough in most places, but have really kind of looked themselves in the mirror about this sort of thing. I don't think politics in most Western democracies is one of them. You know, there have been there have been Me Too incidents in a number of parliaments around the world that I'm aware of. You have big debates every now and again, like that that like that that's been taking place in Australia, and indeed also took place after Julia Gillard, the former Australian Prime Minister's famous anti-misogyny speech in Parliament, where she essentially just said she just had enough with the kind of the blokish, toxic, masculine culture of, of Australian politics. You have cases like that in the UK recently, where the murder of Sarah Everard, a Londoner recently, and the sort of ridiculously over-the-top police reaction to protests for safety for women um, kind of shone a light on some of us of, of British society's blind spots. Our colleagues on the New Statesman podcast did a very good episode about that. But actually, all in all, I can't think of many cases where politics, which does work differently from other industries in many ways, often there are far more blind spots and opportunities for this sort of behaviour to proliferate way beyond the point when other industries have started to try and sort themselves out, is greater than elsewhere. There has I can't think of many places where there's been a real shake-up as, as a result of this. So one, one has to stay optimistic and one has to campaign for change, and there are a lot of things you can do. Obviously, getting more women into parliaments is is a good start because these perspectives, obviously best told by women from a first-person perspective, it is a good way to get beyond the blind spots that can afflict politics. Obviously, legislators need to be held to account for the things they say and the ways they vote. Obviously, you know, this agenda needs to be worked into political programs at the at the stage of their conception. But I agree with you, Emily. I have I think this is a, a case of a of a long, long hard slog rather than a kind of a single moment that that overcomes centuries of, of misogyny. Yeah. And I don't mean to sound negative or pessimistic. I, I just don't, I don't know that sexism is, is seen as a deal breaker for many lawmakers and, and voters. Okay. A bit of a gloomy conclusion, but I, I, I think it's a, it's a good case study to. to but we up. bring you here for honesty, honest analysis, right? That's what brings Jack from Brisbane and so many others 
Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you, Jack from Brisbane for your question. Let's have one last question. Um, this one was from an anonymous asker, but it's a big one. What prospect is there for renewed Israeli-Palestinian peace talks? Okay, not to be like gloom and doom Tampkin over here. I think it's pretty limited. You know, obviously we'll see the outcome of the latest Israeli elections. What I saw shortly before we came to record this podcast was that Netanyahu and Natalie Bennett are going to discuss building a coalition. You know, that would be a right-wing government. We will see if it actually ends up forming. But I, I think that at least from the U.S. perspective. Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. That's where it is now. It's just so ironic to me that Republicans tried to, that some Republicans tried to present Biden as like not supportive of Israel, given that he has been so supportive of the Israeli government for so many years. You know, I think if it were, like if it had been Bernie Sanders, this would be a different conversation. But it wasn't Bernie Sanders, right? It's, it's Joe Biden, who I don't think is going to rock the boat on Israel-Palestine. So I think between the political situation in Israel and the reality of the government that we have here in the United States. And, and the fact that, you know, like with the Abraham Accords, the status quo becomes further enmeshed. I don't think, I, I just don't see that it's going to be seriously challenged. And given how much political will it would take to change that status quo here in Washington, I, I just don't really see new meaningful peace talks on the immediate horizon. Yeah, no, I, of, I often come back to a really good piece written for us by Anshel Pfeffer of Haaretz, also The Economist's Israel correspondent. And he wrote this piece for us the, last year in which he said, essentially, the Palestinian cause is perilously close to being lost. And our colleague Alona Ferber, who was on recently to talk about the upcoming, then upcoming Israeli election, said she thought there was some truth in that. And, you know, you look at... First of all, the, the peace plan put forward by Jared Kushner and the Trump administration in 2019, which essentially envisaged the sort of shredding of what was left of Palestine and the way that that was presented with just total confidence. Like this was like this was this is absolutely the, the, the path that we are on with the Israeli-Palestinian peace, peace plan, I think kind of goes to show, I mean, even from the Trump administration, how little regard there is left for or little time is, is spent, and energy is spent on, on a viable two-state solution. I think it's clear that the Palestinian cause is slipping down the international agenda, while one might hope that a Biden administration and maybe some sort of political shift in Israel would align to to reopen a serious conversation about a two-state future. Recent events don't give grounds for great, great optimism about that. But it's something we need to come back to on this podcast and, and generally, so we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on it. Before we, we round up, I, it, it occurs to me that this has been a slightly gloomy episode, particularly the last two points. So I wanted to just flag one, one point, which I was going to mention on last week's episode, but didn't have time for, which is an example of, of a step forward in tackling toxic masculinity and its wider ramifications. And that was that under a new law in New Zealand famously under the leadership of a successful woman prime minister, Jacinda Ardern. Recently, couples in New Zealand who go through a miscarriage or a stillbirth have been made eligible for paid bereavement leave. And it's one of these things that really should have been the case before and really should be ubiquitous, but are not. And I think where, where New Zealand is, has been pioneering positive legislation. And so I'd like to just end a, a slightly gloomy episode with, with, a, with, a, with, with that positive story as, as an example that to refer to our previous question, things can get better with the right sort of leadership. I agree. I am optimistic on that, that we'll see other countries following that example. Let's first of all say a big thank you to everyone who's sent in questions. We received far more than we've managed to cover in this episode. As always, as 
ever, we keep a record of all those we receive and we'll try and incorporate those as, as many as possible into future episodes and we'll do another You Ask Us special before too long. So thanks very much for that. Let's do our moments of next week. What will you be looking ahead to, Emily? So here in the United States, vaccine rollout has generally gone better than expected. Right at first, Biden said we were going to give out 100 million doses in 100 days. He hit that well before 100 days. I think the goal is now 200 million in in 100 days. But as a D.C. resident, I will say that uh, it has been going less well in D.C. since roughly a third of our allocation went to people who work in D.C. but live out of state. Not saying that those people should not have gotten doses in D.C., but perhaps we should have gotten more and that this is something that D.C. statehood might have <laughs> might have rectified. But as well as it's been going, I also think that we should note that there are new variants in the United States, as there are around the world, and that there is vaccine hesitancy, particularly among more conservative members of the population. So I will be looking at whether the vaccination rate can outpace the spread of those new variants. And what will you be looking at next week? I will be looking ahead to here in Germany, the choice of chancellor candidate by the two parties that are leading in the polls. As I mentioned earlier, the the Greens are are roaring up and now have a a really quite serious chance of taking the chancellery. And both the Greens and Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats are yet to make a choice on who will be their candidate to succeed Merkel. The the Christian Democrats might go for Armin Laschet, who, as we discussed on a recent episode with Constanze Stelzenbüller, is a sort of centrist but rather underwhelming leader of the party. And Marcus Söder from Bavaria, who's been a sort of a a kind of long shot, but is increasingly less improbable as the CDU's woes intensify. And then the Greens are choosing between Robert Habeck and Annalena Baerbock, their two party leaders. It looks like Baerbock might have, might have a slightly better chance, but we're expecting announcements from those two parties, if not in the next week, then not long after Easter. So in the next couple of weeks, so I'll be paying attention to that. And we will continue following German politics on this podcast. So don't you worry about that, listeners. Jeremy is on the case, and I will be here to discuss it with him. There are subjects that we undercover on this podcast. And, we and, <laughs> and then there's German politics. With that, we'd just like to say, as ever, thank you very much to everyone for listening and subscribing and telling your friends and family about it and leaving nice, friendly reviews on Apple and elsewhere. That does make a huge difference. We're trying to get the podcast out to more people. So if you could continue doing that and spreading the word, we would be very grateful for that. And you can also, as a reminder, subscribe to our World Review newsletter. It comes out twice a week. It is free. And you can subscribe at newsstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening. And until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.